If you have your Bibles, will you please open to Isaiah chapter 55. I've been waiting for weeks to preach this chapter. Let's read together, Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray. Dear God, your word has a promise that when your word goes out, it doesn't return to you empty. It accomplishes its purpose. It succeeds in the mission that you give it. And so we come before you needy beggars this morning. And we ask you to work through your word again. Amen. Have you ever met any famous sheep? Or do you know any famous sheep? Anybody? Somebody said Sean? They said Sean in the first um, service as well. Um, Meet Shrek the sheep. This is Shrek the sheep. He is or was famous on the South Island of New Zealand. He's a merino sheep. And unlike wild sheep, merino don't, um, what's the word, shed, right? Their, Their fleece just keeps growing and growing and growing. Now Shrek escaped his enclosure. And for six years, 
he hid out in the, in the caves on the South Island. And they couldn't find him. And when they eventually found him, it was a big event. He became famous. BBC even did a, a piece on it. Um, and they, they, they sheared him, and that became a televised event. I don't know if you can show the next picture here. How crazy is that? <laughs> that fleece weighs 27 kilograms. They said it was enough to make 20 large men's suits. So there was Shrek in the, in the caves, hiding out under this enormous weight, the wool literally growing over his eyes so that he cannot see properly. And Shrek, let's see one more picture. There he is nicely cleaned up. Shrek's story is our own story. Shrek's story is a metaphor for our lives, if you are a Christian. Isaiah 53 describes our plight. In verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We're like Shrek, hiding from God in, in caves with this unbearable burden. The, the wool growing over our eyes, thinking that our, our ways are better, that we know better, trusting ourselves and our, and our idols to save. All the while, real peace and real satisfaction, a feast, is on offer freely through Christ. The theme of peace and of rest is a big theme in the book of Isaiah. The people want peace but it's elusive to rebellious children. So in 48.18, God says, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. And Isaiah has this promise throughout. Messiah will come. He will be the prince of peace. He will establish a kingdom of peace that cannot be shaken. And yet, if we are to have any place in that kingdom, he must deal with our sin. And so in Isaiah chapter 53, we see in verse 6, Though we like sheep have gone astray, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And so peace being made possible between man and God in Isaiah 53, we come to Isaiah 54 and 55, and it's an invitation, an invitation to respond to the suffering servant, to respond what he has done for you. We've seen snapshots in Isaiah. It's been an invitation every week. Behold, trust, choose, receive, we saw last week. This week, the invitation is to come. Come to Him. Verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? When my wife and I went to uh, Thailand, we went on a short holiday a few years ago. Uh, we visited Phuket, and Phuket is a, um, a big tourist hotspot. You can't walk through the streets of Phuket and not hear street vendors calling out. And they're very good at what they do. 
They, they call out in the exact dialect of the, the country that they believe you're from. So we are a white people walking through Phuket, and we were hearing as we go, good day, mate, in pretty perfect Australian, because they thought we were from Australia. But every now and then, in a thick Santon accent, we'd hear, how's it? Do you know how disarming it is thinking you're the only South Africans in a place and to hear that on the streets of Phuket? But that's the whole point. They grab your attention in that way. That's what Isaiah is doing in verse 1. He calls out, come, three times. If you look in your ESV, it looks like four, but the first one, the first word come actually shouldn't be translated come. We can't translate the word. Scholars think what Isaiah is doing is he's mimicking the cry of a street vendor. He's bringing to their mind the marketplace in order, order to shock and to grab their attention. Come, he's saying, there's a feast on offer, something that you could never, ever afford, and it's offered freely. And yet you choose to spend everything that you have on food that's going to leave you hungry, frustrated, and unsatisfied. God calls us to this feast of joy, a feast of peace in Him. And yet don't we choose so often to pay dearly in blood, in tears, in our real money for idolatries. We pay in hurt that follows our sin. We, we pay in anxiety and depression that comes from a, a distance from God. We pay in turmoil from our own attempts at self-righteousness. We pay in fatigue from our own efforts at self-justification. Rather than come and eat and buy, eat a feast bought and paid for, we choose the path of sorrow and of heartache. And so Ray Ortland in his commentary says, our world is a vast marketplace of unsatisfying but costly remedies for our God-shaped longings. But we're not very smart shoppers. It's a consequence of our sin nature, this default notion, I can in my own ingenuity, my own strength, my own wisdom, I can attain satisfaction for my soul in the things that the world has to offer and money, and romance, and popularity, and power, and entertainment, those things are going to make me happy. And some have spent all that they have. They've spent all they have. They're tired. Maybe that's you. You're, you're fatigued, jaded. Maybe you're burnt out today. You're like a, a, a Joburg lawn in the middle of winter, just brown and dry and thirsty like the woman at the well, thirsting for, for something else, real water, like Zacchaeus, all the money in the world and yet looking, still in great need. To those who have spent all they have, this passage is a call to come. There are others that are still trying. Maybe you still have money. Maybe you still have labor. I mean, strength for labor. Your eyes are still searching, darting to and fro. Maybe you're caught in this endless pursuit of more, always spending, but if you're honest, never really filled up, headed as well for one thing, frustration. 
John Piper comments on this person. He says, for all his spending, working, dreaming, chasing, searching, experimenting, different job, different city, different car, different house, different wife, new computer, new boat, new books, new bike, new grill, new season tickets, new diet, new looks. There's still a lot of looking around left in this person, but still no pot at the end of the rainbow, no fountain of youth, and every triumph peters out. The applause fades, the boat is boring, the style passes, everything new gets old, and the options get fewer and fewer. It was an old Calvin and Hobbes comic strip with the caption, Getting is better than having. When you get something, it's new and exciting. When you have something, you take it for granted, and it's boring. But everything you get turns into something that you have. Not so this feast on offer that Isaiah describes. And so he cries out like a competing vendor saying, Stop! Stop putting all your hope! for joy and for strength and for peace in yourself and in your stuff. It's crazy. Stop being spent and spending in tears when there is a feast unimaginable on offer and it's on offer for free. Come, all who are needy, all who are thirsty, all who are hungry, all who know that they do not possess the money that would make the transaction to satisfy their souls. Come, he says, and buy, (laughs) buy without money. There's a biblical truth in this passage, and that's that the, the food that satisfies must be bought, but it's bought with money that we do not possess. It cannot be bought by us. It's interesting that he still says, buy, It's because the feast on offer is free for us, but it's not cheap. Alec Mocha in his commentary said this. He said, alongside this emphasis on freeness, the verb buy is repeated. The thought of purchase is not set aside. This is no soup kitchen. Even if the clients are beggars, there is a purchase and a price, though not theirs to pay. They bring their poverty to a transaction already completed. So Peter, in his letter to the church, speaking to exiles, like Isaiah was looking forward to and speaking to exiles in his book, in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 to 19, says, You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not by perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then he quotes Isaiah 53 in 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Jesus comes. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 the one pierced for our transgressions. And he says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ pays the tab, and ours is the freedom. But we must come 
We come with our insatiable thirst, not to the world, but to Him, and only He can satisfy. We come believing, Jesus, You are the bread of life. You are living water. We say like David in Psalm 4, verse 7, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and their grain abound. Those who buy without money, they know this truth as the foundation of their lives, that God is the feast on offer, and He is better food. In verse 2 and 3, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And the metaphor, come to the waters in verse 1, becomes the reality, come to me in verse 3. God is the feast on offer today. And the offer he makes of himself to us is an offer that is anchored in a promise that he will not break. He says in verse 3, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. In verse 4 and 5, he then talks about this David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. It's possible that that verse 4 is speaking about the actual David who died. But verse 5 can't be. He says, Behold, you shall call a nation, because now it's future tense, and you, a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Now some think this refers to the people of Israel, but while the, the you I will make with you an everlasting covenant in verse 3 is plural, the you three times in verse 5 is not plural, it's singular. I believe this is a reference to David, but not the David who has died, the David who is to come. This invitation to them and to us is to come. God says, come to me and I will satisfy you. But he also promises this. He says, my love for you will be secure, forever secure, and not as secure as your faithfulness is towards me, as secure as my own love for David, my son. This is the son in whom he was well pleased, the one glorified on the cross to draw the peoples to himself. So John Piper says, God offers you in this verse, verse 3, the unswerving love an unbreakable commitment that he has towards his own son. When you believe this, the roots of your life go down around the boulders of God's grace and you become a strong tree against the gusts of Satan's indictments and deceptions. To a people in exile, he is saying, you are not cast off. I've made a promise and I will not break that promise. God will not back out of this arrangement. His king will not fail but will cover the failings of His people. And the only way, this is, it's important for us because the only way that confused hearts can begin to believe that the total pursuit of God as the greatest treasure of life, the only way confused hearts can begin to believe that is if they know for sure that His love will never fail them. Have you ever heard of the imposter syndrome? Anyone ever heard of that? I was reading an article about it this week. 
Um, and it caught my attention in a scary way because I did a little test and I scored scarily high on, the, on that test. Imposter syndrome is when it doesn't matter what you achieve, it doesn't matter how you are received by your peers, by your boss, your colleagues, um, you feel like a fraud in your, your workplace or in your job or family or group of friends or whatever it is. It leads to this anxiety, this crippling perfectionism. The primary problem is, is this need to achieve in order to, to purchase your worth and your value. This drive to, to purchase acceptance and love and approval. And often people like this struggle with accepting the love of others, even the love of God himself. For those here today who are maybe not sure, you're not sure if God's love is certain enough to be the secure foundation of your life now and forever, the message is lift up your eyes off of yourself, off of your circumstances, Look to him and look at what he's done for you. Look to the suffering servant and look what he's done for you, the one who suffered for your pardon. He invites you to an unshakable covenant today. The gates of heaven have been thrown open. Why do you stand off? Deny yourself and come. This message is so close to the Father's heart. It's the same message right at the end of the book. Almost the very last words in Revelation 22:17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You can hear urgency in Isaiah's words as poetic metaphor in verse 1 is abandoned for this call, this clear warning in verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Have you ever felt like God is far off from you? Like He is lost and cannot be found? I sometimes speak to people and this is what they say. I, I don't know what He wants from me. I don't know where He is. I speak to young people often, and often this is the message. Where is he? What does he want? I can't find him. And my response is, he's not hiding. He's not hiding. Are you sure that you are looking? Alec Mottier comments, he says, the seek in this verse is used not in the sense of looking for what is lost, but of coming with commitment to one known to be there. Now, I know there are times in life where struggles and, and temptations cause us to feel like God is far off. We do. We go through those sort of dark nights of the soul. But often, I believe, the problem in people who say that they cannot find Him is that they don't really want to. They're holding on to other things. They maybe want something from Him, without the commitment of giving themselves completely to Him. Ray Ortland, in his commentary, says, to seek the Lord is to stop dawdling and to become intentional about Him, setting highest value on Him, removing everything that keeps us from Him, hearing His word without backtalk, opening up to His will with no preconditions, 
budgeting our money for His cause first, seeking the Lord as a whole life realignment with Christ, we stop treating Him as a religious garnish on the side. He becomes our continual feast, our defining center. God is not hiding. He is not hiding. But our problem is that we cling to our own ways, our own wisdom, our own thoughts, and our own desires. Like that, that monkey with his hand in the jar. Have you ever seen, they actually made a video of this. I think there were tribes that used to build a jar with a, a, a bottleneck just small enough for a monkey to reach in and they'd put nuts or, or something in the bottom of that jar and the monkey would reach in and grab onto the nuts uh, and then wouldn't be able to get his fist out of the jar and struggle and struggle and struggle so that they could come and just capture the monkey easily. But at no point would the monkey open his hands and let go of those nuts and, and pull free. That's what we are like. Verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon the feast of God's compassion and mercy is abundant. It's overflowing day by day. We don't buy it with our own money. We, we don't earn it. We come just as we are. But the truth is, when we come, we don't stay that way. We don't stay that way. When you drink from living water, God's life, when you drink spiritual milk, when you drink from the wine of joy in Him. The result is that the feast reorders your thinking. It reorders your choosing and your hoping. It reorders your seeing and your lifestyle becomes one of repentance. Don't give me the pools of the world that look good but leave a bitter aftertaste. Give me living water. This is what seeking looks like. Seeking is forsaking. We forsake our wicked ways, our lifestyle. We forsake our evil thoughts, the philosophy that leads to those ways. John Piper again comments, if you call out to God, oh God, I need you, help me. One of the very first things that will happen in answer to that prayer is that God will awaken your conscience to something in your life that needs to be forsaken. If God answers your call in that way and you refuse to forsake what your conscience condemns, then you cease to seek God and your words become empty. You can't seek God where He is not to be found. You can't seek Him in sin. Some of you today maybe feel like God is far off. Maybe like life is not working out. God, why won't you just give me this gift? Why would you allow this to happen in my life? Maybe you're angry where is he? Would you consider the truth, maybe, in your situation that you have never come to him with this wholehearted commitment? Jesus, you are the treasure that I seek no matter what else. You are what I want. We all go through loss and trial and hardship. It's a staple in all of our lives. And it can make you disillusioned with God and it has made many disillusioned with God or it can make you worshipful as in your loss you cling still to the truth. Jesus, you are all that I need. You are still enough for me. To seek Him we must deny ourselves. 
And the reason is given in verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts, he says, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There is a gulf. There is an expanse between our thinking and his thinking, our ways and his ways. And not just in terms of understanding. We, it is true. We use this verse when God does something that is confusing, that we don't understand. It's true. His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But in the context, there's a, a moral element to these verses. The contrast is between ways and thoughts that are pure and forever righteous. And our ways and thoughts, the thoughts of sinful people, So James Smart says these verses lay open the abyss between God and the community. The abyss that startled Isaiah when the holiness of God revealed to him the unholiness of Israel. The deadly abyss between themselves and God that can be bridged only by their responding with their whole being to God's offer of forgiveness. When when Isaiah, remember in Isaiah chapter 6 where he got a glimpse of this abyss and was devastated by the sight of the holiness of God and then experienced the grace of God, forgiveness that he, he couldn't comprehend or expect. What was his response? Forget my ambitions and my plans. Where do you want me? Where do you want me? And now Isaiah highlights the abyss between the people and God and calling them to repentance. For repentance to be true, it must start at this point where you realize in utter hopelessness that there is no avenue that I can take. There is no avenue that I can walk down in order to save myself, in order to make myself right with God. Forsaking all avenues, we come with this one hope, the mercy of God. Repentance flows from amazement. Isaiah 55 flows from the shock of Isaiah 53. Who has believed? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who could comprehend? The righteous pierced for the unrighteous. The iniquity of the wicked put on the shoulders of the pure one. What do you mean it was the will of the Lord to crush him in order to put on the spread of bread and wine for the rebel? Isaiah 53, which looks forward to God redeeming and forever purchasing the freedom of his sinful children at the greatest imaginable cost to himself. It is case in point of what Isaiah is speaking of here in 55 verse 8 and 9. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So when you are tempted next time to reject the feast that is on on offer, thinking that something else would satisfy instead, when you are tempted to shake your finger at the Lord, saying, why have you let this happen to me? Why won't you give me this? Isaiah's response to you would be, maybe you are distrusting the wrong thing. You're distrusting Him when you should be distrusting your own thoughts. Forsake your thinking and ask God to help you to think like He does. Well, left to ourselves, there would be no hope of that, would there? God, you ask me to forsake my thoughts and my ways 
to seek you while you are near. But then you also say that your thoughts are so far above my thoughts, your ways are so far above my ways, as unattainable as the, the moon is for me standing here on earth right now. How? How can I in my sinful state come to your feast? We don't reach from earth to heaven. Heaven reaches down to us with sovereign and with saving purpose and provision. God's not hiding. He is speaking. Look at verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God speaks and his word does not fail. It does not fail. As rain produces life on the earth, so his word produces repentance in our hearts. Repentance is how we come to the feast. Every day it's how we come to the feast. And God's word is his mighty means of producing that repentance in our lives. Barry Webb in his commentary said, His word which once spoke the universe into existence has gone forth again and it has lost none of its ancient power. Nothing can frustrate it or divert it from its course. It is powerful still today. It is powerful right now. It's why we gather every week. We don't come for human genius or for tricks. We don't come for ingenuity. There is no eloquence or power in my words apart from the Word of God. We come because it is healing rain. Whether we've heard it one time or a thousand times. To hunger for the feast of God is to hunger for His Word. There's no separation. In fact, hungering for His Word is a sign that you hunger for Him. If seeking is forsaking, then the way that we come is by opening up our ears to His Word. Three times in verse 1, He says, come, right? Come to the feast. And then in verse 2 and 3, intentionally, there's a threefold listen. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. We come by hearing. The one who spoke creation into existence has spoken through his son, through Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, and he speaks still today through the Bible. Jesus is the, the message of life to a lost world. He came and he spoke. And creation obeyed. Demons shuddered. The lame walked and the dead come to life. And he comes to us today and he says, Come to me and I will give you rest. Hear him call today. Because finally, with his effective and sovereign word, there is a promise in verses 12 and 13 to those who come. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar, the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. To exiles trapped in a land that is not their home. Isaiah uses this language of liberation. You shall go forth and be led. But this promise is more than just to exiles coming back to a physical Jerusalem. This is another picture in Isaiah of the reversal of the curse and the promises to all of us today of a new heaven, a new home, 
an eternal home where every tear will be wiped away and every loss will be more than matched by glory. Do you believe that? The Davidic king of verses 4 and 5, the leader and commander of the peoples, the one to whom the nations will run, the one glorified in the world, he is the one who will lead us into this new heaven, this new home. And this home is the it of verse 13, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall never be cut off. Like conquering kings who set up memorials to their victory and their power and their strength, the new heaven and the new earth where peace reigns and joy pervades will forever be a memorial to the name of the Lord. It will be a memorial to His character, His merciful goodness, His satisfying presence. The everlasting joy of the people of God will be an everlasting memorial to the greatness of God. And so today, we strive, like we sang earlier, to sing minor keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Peter Kreeft said, Suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny, less a scratch on a penny. We stake our eternal joy on this promise. The meek shall inherit the earth. Those who are hungry and thirsty, sinners who come with nothing but their need, those who are weak and wandering and yet they have only this hope, a louder word ringing out in their hearts, we come forsaking broken systems, forsaking the empty wells of sin and self-righteousness. We come without money and we come to buy and eat freely. And if today you are Shrek the sheep, hiding out in the caves of false hopes and false pleasures, I encourage you return. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Cry out for mercy and come to Christ with empty hand and with open ear and find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Father, we declare as your people together that you are the feast on offer that we want. Christ, you are the treasure that we seek. You are the pearl of great price. You are everything that we need. You are more. You are always more more than what this world has to offer. And yet our hearts, Lord, so often we, we spend our money on that which is not bread. And we need you. We need you to reveal yourself again. Help us to see you, to taste and to see that you are good. Take our undivided hearts, Lord, and draw them closer to you. I mean, our divided hearts and draw them to you, Lord. And guard us, we pray. Amen.